Hello, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am your host after a couple weeks of hiatus, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games. I make tabletop role-playing games, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hello, Jess. Yes, I am Craig Campbell. I am the owner of Nerd Burger Games, and I also make tabletop role-playing games because this, as we have said before, is um, like coming to a, a support group, so we all introduce ourselves that way. And uh, <laughs> we have a brand new uh, guest, first time on the show. Hello, Jason. Welcome, and thank you for coming on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Craig. Uh, thanks, Jess. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a first-time guest on our podcast. Sure. Well, my name is Jason Morningstar, and I'm the creative director at Bully Pulpit Games. And that's a big title for a small company. <laughs> uh, I'm primarily a game designer. Uh, I make tabletop and live action role playing games. And I also consult on playful approaches to teaching and learning in academia and industry. So uh, a little a little column A, a little column B. Uh, I do a lot of different stuff. Well, I love educators. As listeners know, I am I'm a high school teacher, so I appreciate the academic approaches to gaming in um in teaching and in design. So, um and I think our topic is like really amenable to that too. A lot of my experiences <laughs> as an educator <laughs> are wrapped up into this topic. Um Craig, do you want to you want to get us into things? Well, I'm going to I'm going to kind of but we're going to hand it off to Jason here because he suggested it. Um the, the and and tell me if I'm uh approaching this the right way if you want to expand on what I'm saying. We're we're looking at failure um in game you know and and in in games and in game design um and in uh you know it, kind of from the designer point of view from the uh, gm point of view um and let's let's clarify that are you talking about like designing for like characters failing in game are we talking about like you as a designer or a gm failing at doing something yeah i think um I think there are many ways to approach this topic and the way that I like to frame it and contextualize it is talking about playing to lose, but not playing to fail. I think uh, if we use failure as a, uh, as a benchmark for a substandard experience or uh, um, things that are not satisfying or interesting to us, then what we're really talking about is designing around playing to lose, um, which is which is very different. So we're not playing to fail because uh, failure implies something in the real world, uh, but we're playing to lose because sometimes uh, your objectives are orthogonal to winning. Um, and sometimes failure as a design goal can or loss as a design goal can be really beneficial. Uh, and a lot of my work, uh, I, I feel like really focuses on this. I'm really interested in in uh, in the opposite of success. Let's <laughs> I guess put it that way. Many of my games, uh, the outcomes are somewhat predetermined or you're really focusing on exploring the loss case for your characters or uh, looking at elements that are outside your control and then adapting to them rather than necessarily overcoming them. And we can give I can give lots of specific examples of that, but really it's about playing to lose, right? And uh, that's not the opposite of playing to win. 
right? We sometimes, especially in tabletop role playing, where it's very uh, collaborative, we talk about playing to win as being a bad thing. Games are not competitive. We win if we tell a good story together, or we win if you know we're all having a good time at the table, and that can be true. But uh, the uh, the opposite to that might be very satisfying experiences around total loss among the characters uh, and that can be really fun so we're really refactoring what winning means in this context these words are very slippery talk about loss and failure are they different are they the same how do we win if we're actually losing there's a lot to sort of unpack here and i'm happy to be here to do that but really i think ultimately we're centering an experience above an outcome if you're playing monopoly there's a clear winner uh, there's a clear loser. There are competitive tabletop role-playing games and competitive LARPs where there are clear winners and losers, although they're rarer. Uh, but uh, what we're really interested in is an experience. And maybe that experience is one of loss rather than success. Maybe it's not a power fantasy. Maybe it's the opposite of that. And that's it, it, that's a space I'm really interested in. So is that a good uh, a good framing for the, the topic? Absolutely. No. And I, I think too, because a lot of gamers, they come from a, they come from D&D, like a lot of gamers into tabletop role playing games are coming sure. from a game where you have in the game is designed around encounters where there is a winner or a loser. If you lose the, if you lose the battle, your character is dead. And that can make people like really kind of stiffen up like that's the that's like where a lot of the concepts of losing in a tabletop game are coming from are those accurate um not always but when people play these these types of games that's what they might think of they think of loss as a character death which is i don't think always um always a bad thing either all some of my favorite moments have been when my characters have um died uh <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i i, I when I think of gaming, because I like a lot of narrative gaming, it's not fun for me if my character is always on top of the world. We're always winning. We're always we're always doing the best thing, and we never have any loss at all. It just does not make for a satisfying narrative for me. It doesn't make for a satisfying game. Um, and also kind of like what you said, there are games that do have the clear winner and loser. I played one very recently, and I had the time of my life. <laughs> yeah, for game sure where you were all playing like you're playing different aspects of winter and you were hunting down a mortal in the forest for your your goddess of winter um and there's a clear winner or loser at the end of that because it's whoever gets the the most favor from the goddess at the end or if you don't actually manage to track down this mortal to bring back to your mistress and it was really really fun sure uh, because the game was designed around the the aspect of 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 losing of failing i know that you have distinguished this too um there's there's some clear competition built into it and right. it's I, I think it's worth just sort of staking out the 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 idea that um there really isn't a right way to play we're not despair if if what you like is a, a steady progression of success where your characters become more powerful over time that's awesome that's a great way to play there's nothing wrong with that um, and I'm certainly not advocating for anybody to change what they love. If you love it, do it. Um, I think that there's a, a broader tonal palette that you can choose from if you want to. And that's really what I'm talking about. So like, uh, let's not, um, let's not disparage any way to play. Uh, this is what I'm just talking about is a particular 
mode that is really fun for me and that I tend to design for. Oh, absolutely. No, no one is disparaging anything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I've, I've played plenty of games that are of successful power fantasy where I am, I am having the time of my life. Um, and yeah, I think that just for me, I find it to be very highly unsatisfying. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Yep. Um, I think it's worth pointing out too, that, cause I know that we started off like with using certain words, certain ways, just everybody can keep in mind. Now that you've heard Jason frame the whole discussion of what we're talking about here is if one of us does slip and use the word failure, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, don't, like don't we don't have to, we don't have to be correcting proper. ourselves constantly. We, we, we know where we're kind of going with that. So, um, cause otherwise I see like, <laughs> we just constantly, um, correcting ourselves with the terminology yeah please don't worry about it and if you're listening to this don't worry about it we i think we all understand the difference between an unsatisfying or unhappy situation as players and an unhappy or difficult situation as characters and that the former is never desirable and the second can be very desirable if that's what you're aiming for no one Uh, likes a nitpicker (laughs) And I think the uh, um, some of this comes from the fact that I've just been talking about this with people who are not gamers. I gave a presentation at the Civil Service College in Singapore, and I really needed to be very specific about my language for them because they were coming at this from a a really different point of view as civil servants and not necessarily as hardcore role playing gamers. So so that's on my mind, thinking about how to how to be very clear in my language. But since we're all in the same nerd pit. Maybe it's not as important. <laughs> That's a great um, name for a podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I think that it, it's dawned on me as we're having this conversation is one thing that we're doing right now is setting expectations for our listeners of what to expect from us, which I think is a really important element of playing to lose, making sure that those expectations are set. I do this as a teacher. I, I tell my students, you're not going to have an easy time with everything in my class. We're learning a language. You are not going to get it right away. Otherwise, why would you be here? And we we set we we look at what like in the first couple of weeks of school and periodically we look at what failure looks like because that's the word we use in the class. What does it mean to fail? Is that a bad word? Or like what does it mean to struggle? And uh, we we talk about that explicitly. And I think that that's something any good GM or player should do um, at the table is setting those expectations that include the expectations of, uh, well, what are we doing here? Are we losing? Are we winning? I think as a designer, that's part of your job too, right? You can communicate in your text what what the experience of play is going to be like, what the sort of the broader expectations and what the guardrails on that are. So if you're playing a game that really is designed as a play to lose game, like fiasco, for example. Um, and, and if you play that game with a mindset of winning, it's like, like you want your character to succeed and become better and more powerful and, end better than they started, which is an outcome that is possible and even likely in fiasco for somebody. But if everybody plays toward that, the game is unsatisfying. It says right on the box, don't do that, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I articulate that. And I think if you were to bring a game like fiasco to people who, had never played before, you really do need to make that clear. Like we're playing dumb people who are getting in trouble uh, and we're flipping the script and you're supposed to be bad at what you do and your characters are supposed to make poor choices. And as long as you communicate that, everybody is aligned and you can really play hard toward that. But if you're not communicating that either in your rules text or at the table, then it can be very unsatisfying. That can be failure on the, the player level because 
people are, you know, not aligned in their priorities and uh, will be disappointed in the outcome. Absolutely. The disappointment could come because I've, I've played fiasco a couple of times. And if you ever tried to try to play to win, it's going to be not a fun, not a great fun time for you because the rules might not always work out that way for you. Well, they don't. And the, it's interesting because I, of course, I've played it many times uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I've probably played it more than anyone on earth. In fact, I think I can just claim that title. And um, I've played with people who even after that discussion are like, well, uh, actually, this is a kind of a good anecdote. I played with a, another game designer who uh, who said, your game is broken and I'm going to prove it to you. And I was like, well, uh-huh. that is a choice you make. I don't know that that's going to be a fun time for anybody, but you do you, buddy. And we played and uh, this game designer chose the optimal choice at every point in the game to make their character more competent, more powerful, more successful, which is a thing you can do. Uh, and that's really boring, like like deliberately boring in, in the design of Fiasco. And what happened or what happens in those circumstances is that the other players at the table will route around that to find the fun. And so this person was very steadfast in proving their point and the rest of us had a great time. And at the yeah, end of so the they, game, they absolutely, their character won. They had a great outcome. They were successful and they just had a boring tepid uninteresting game of fiasco while the other three of us you know we routed around that problem and had had a lot of fun and our characters were ruined and had bad bad outcomes and it was just a great time so basically you had p- different people playing the ga- play playing the same game but in their own separate bubbles that just happened to be adjacent to one another yeah and if, if um, just and with fiasco in particular if one person's doing that the game still kind of functions but if more than one person's doing that it's going to fall apart it's just not designed to accommodate that which which um, ties into like kind of any game that has a thematic element that's out of the ordinary. And if, you know, if if you don't have everybody at the table buying into this is what this game is about, this is what this game does, then um, you run that risk. Um, absolutely. I, I've, I've done that with with Die Laughing, um, which was directly like that game exists because I played uh, Fiasco and Last Best Hope mm-hmm. at one Gen Con and got really inspired by the idea of characters dying or having things go really terribly wrong. And I'm a big horror movie fan. So I was like, I'm going to make a game where all the characters die and there's interesting things for you to do afterwards. But the point is to get your character killed. Um, you can play to try to win, but only one person's going to do it. And they're going to have like that. You know, they're the survivor, the final girl, final guy, whatever, but everybody else is going to fail in, in, you know, in horror movie aspects, which is to get killed or transformed into a sexy zombie or, you know, whatever. Um, and you're going to, but then you'll, you'll kind of go and have this other experience of where like in the game, for those who aren't familiar, when your character is wrapped, you're basically, you're, you're making a movie. The idea is that you're making a movie. So when your character becomes wrapped as in that's a wrap for your character, you become a producer on the movie and you get to screw around with everything else that's going on. Um, so you still have things to do. And I've I've played with people who race to become a producer. For sure. Like oh, yeah. I want to kill my character as quickly as possible. I'm going to mechanically metagame what I can everything I can do to get my character killed as quickly as possible. And I'm going to make deals with people in character and like let them make me lose dice. Like convince people to get my character killed as quickly as possible. It's a, it's um, a because they just, love that other experience. For sure. Right. And what you're describing is can be problematic too. Like I um I play my local group that I play with. They're so inured to the idea of playing to lose that they will push for that hard and, and no matter what the game. 
And so if you're playing fate, for example, that just doesn't work. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, if you accept every compel because you want everything to go wrong, it's just the, the game is, is it says right at the front, this is a game about competent people who often succeed. And if you're playing to be incompetent and to fail, it's just not, it's not going to function. So like, it, again, it's a, it's a matter of clearly communicating and being transparent about what your expectations are and what you're all there for. I think even as simple as we're here to get scared, you know, we're going to play a horror game and we want to be scared. If you don't want to be scared, you're at the wrong table. Let's freak each other out. You know, let's, let's make it uncomfortable and weird uh, within the boundaries we've set. But like, that's why we're playing a horror game or, you know, we want to fall in love. That's why we're playing a romance game. Uh, and if you don't want that, if you're uncomfortable with that, then you're you're playing the wrong game in the wrong setting with the wrong people at the wrong time. It's why it's so important for a game designer to know what they're what they're trying to do with their game before yep. they do anything else with it. Because if you if you're going for one tone and all of your mechanics are supporting something else, you've 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 messed it up at some point and someone's going to be disappointed, you or your players. Yeah. And yeah, and no one wants that, to be disappointed. You see that so often. The the uh, a really good benchmark is if somebody's talking about anything other than fighting in their game, but fifty percent of the rules are about fighting. Yeah. What are you doing? What, you know, what are you communicating with your in, the instructions for players versus the words you're using to to hype your game? Um, I think that's a that's a good example. Absolutely, we've talked about that before in the podcast. Like the 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 amount of time and the amount of space you're spending covering a specific aspect of your game literally tells you what is important, tells the reader what's important, tells the player what's important in the game um, and is going to completely color the experience for the rest of your players. Just like any other any other text, the more you repeat a concept, the more literary weight you're giving it. Really, really important to do. That's my first recommendation for every game designer is to know what your game is trying to do. Setting yeah. your expectations for your own whole game, making yeah. yourself a nice little concept. And also, um, from in my experience, often your game will tell you what it wants to be about and you need to listen to it. And that that might sound a little strange, but it, that I, I, I think that's really good advice. Like as you're developing a, a game, just listen. It'll tell you what it wants to be and then try to help it be what it's intended to be what it wants to be and and keep that in mind as you're designing and whenever you hit like i do that whenever i hit a hard choice a, a difficult choice where i'm like i'm not sure what to do about this particular problem in the game i have to remind myself okay this this is a game about heroics or this is a game about getting characters killed or this is a game about um you know uh just coming out ahead but not you know being the center of attention or gaining any sure. acclaim or whatever whatever the 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 gist of the game is um and like and i wholeheartedly agree with what jason said about sometimes the game will tell you what it's about as you're going along that happened with me um on and, and a couple of different occasions where i started designing something and i really love the mechanics and then i suddenly realized like halfway through developing everything it's like oh this is actually a game about something else yeah. um and i embraced it um and i could have you know, tweak that back and said, no, I want it. To, I want it to be, I really want it to be about this other thing. So I'm going to have to, you know, sh shred some of what I've developed here and try to find, you know, the mechanics or the, or the, 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 the ideas that will get me to that thing. Um, but I already had something that was really interesting. Um, so I continued to develop it in the direction that the game was kind of speaking to me. 
this has happened to me so many times when I've written adventures for people. Like, mm, I wanted this adventure to be about this topic, but the way it's coming out, I think a lot of fiction writers will also find a lot of um, a lot of meaning and a lot of truth in in that, uh, Jason. I feel like that's such a uh, a hard concept to explain to people who have never experienced that the the call the call of the muse <laughs> your game is your game is speaking to you well not really but but also yes it's so I, it's one of my favorite things about writing yeah it's that's very true uh i i do think too like at the end when when you are putting together your final book making it really explicit like we've mentioned a couple of those you know this is a game about competent people who mostly succeed or uh, this is this is a game about a bunch of klutzes who are going to tear the entire house down. Whatever it is, you should make it explicit in your game text. So the GMs or or the player group, if there's if it's a GMless game or a solo game, so they know too. Um, and they can have a nice little spiel to give to somebody who is pitching uh, the game to a player. So, like all down the line, you're 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 setting up everybody to succeed um by by making it very explicit and there's no harm in that um i've i've read some game texts before where at the end of it i'm like i'm not sure what i'm supposed to be doing here and it does make it harder to play the game just in general it makes me a little less likely to want to play the game if i'm not sure what i'm supposed to be doing yeah i think there are a number of games that um they read really well they're interesting and exciting and they're full of cool stuff but then when you sit down to play them you're like well what what do i do i don't yeah. i don't understand yeah I've, I've experienced that many times so what do we do as is there anything else we can do as a gm specifically um we'll we'll start there before um jumping back into the design aspect is there something we could do as a as a gm or as somebody who's kind of facilitating a gmless game uh that that can make playing to lose possible totally yeah there's so many tools in your arsenal and i think the first one is to be transparent to be really clear about expectations and desires right and that might be hey we're playing a game where where our characters are going to lose is everybody cool with that if not let's play a different game uh, but it can also be uh managing those sort of the scaffolding around whatever you're doing in a way that allows the, your your friends to feel more comfortable with it. So it may be in a situation where um, your character is precious and you don't want them to be harmed, it may be saying, uh, this is a situation, we're going to go into a situation where your precious characters are going to be harmed, but just you have to trust me, it's going to be okay. Or um, let's take a risk. Uh, or let's play secondary characters because this is going to be a really wild situation where they're probably going to die. Let's play a side story in our Pathfinder game where a bad thing happens and the evil guy wins. Uh, and then we can go back to our main story where your guys are not in any danger. You know, these are all kind of options that are available to you. They're tools in the toolbox, but you just need to be clear about that. Um because I, I just don't think there's any percentage in surprising people with with tonal shifts or procedural shifts that they don't necessarily uh, consent to or that they're not comfortable with. But I guarantee you, like if you're playing Pathfinder and you say, let's let's tell a side story, make up some first level guys. We know this world. We know the arc of 
play. We know who the big bad evil guy is. Let's see what happens when these guys uh, get destroyed by the evil bad guys. And then, you know, you can return to your main campaign with more context and more color and more, you know, uh, motivation. There's all kinds of ways that you can do that. And honestly, that's going to be really fun for them because it's freeing. It's totally liberating to, to play characters that you don't have to protect, that you right. don't necessarily want to protect. Uh, that's, um, that is a very satisfying place to be uh, because you can take risks and you can make big swings. And if things don't work out, uh, whatever, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. I have a so, recommendation specifically for Pathfinder Adventure Path that does it. It's one of my favorites. It's the Hell's Rebels or the Hell's Vengeance Adventure Path where you're playing the same storyline, but from different different sides of this war. Super, oh, cool. super fun. Super, yeah. super fun to run. Um, so if you are a Pathfinder player and you want to try out something like that, oh, that's my favorite place to go. <laughs> that's awesome. That sounds really fun. I love stuff like that. Where, where you're creating context and then you can revisit that context. And there's like, of view. there's like a little overlap too. It like adds extra, because you can also, of course, as you're running the game, make things affect either side of it. Um, and that can make like, oh, we, oh, it's, it's time for us to play the second batch of players or of characters. And we're all gonna, we're not going to have these guys at the end, but we're still doing something. We're still, we still have a purpose. Um, I think giving failure and loss a purpose as well as a GM, I think that that's a great incentive to, even in a main path, like if your character dies and that's the end of the story and you were never able to wrap up an arc that you really wanted to see through to the end and that's just it, you never get to solve this grand mystery that can come with a lot of negative uh, feelings for you as a player. I think a, a good GM will find a way to um, kind of continue the light for them and give you, you, as you roll up your next character or whatever you're doing, you another avenue to um, kind of pick up the torch and and go on as well. Um, <laughs> even if it's something as simple as like, oh yeah, it's your it's your twin brother, Gary. Yep, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Sometimes I think that's totally appropriate. Some some players are totally satisfied with um having having all of the hopes and dreams completely squashed. Um I I think uh if if anyone's ever played Final Fantasy 7, you'll know there's a there's a character that everyone is sad about dying about <laughs> the game. And that can be fun. And they don't get to continue their story. <laughs> and now you get to now you have someone to avenge. Right. Right. You know? <laughs> You've got a your, great motivator. Your brother, Larry. <laughs> Poor Larry. He <laughs> died so quickly, that first level fighter. Not Larry. But Jerry will avenge him. <laughs> Gary, I, as Gary, I will avenge my brother, Larry. Happens all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, and that speaks to, uh, you know, a player's desire for continuity and closure. And I, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I think that the game's working against human nature and impulses if if those things are not built into the fabric of it maybe i think about um games that have like a death move where you know you when your character dies you go beyond the black gates and something cool happens or you 
you know, you get a chance to make a, a final decision or leave a final mark in the world. And that kind of stuff is really fun. And it provides that sense of closure sometimes that that I think, well, you, you rolled bad and now you're dead. Just doesn't necessarily offer. Right. Absolutely. The closure. And that's kind of what I was getting at with um, the beginning when I was talking about, you know, you play D&D &D and you're, you're the, the, the party loses a battle. Everyone's dead. What now? what do you do um i think i don't know i haven't read um some of the more recent gm's guides uh dm's guides uh for dnd &D. i don't know if if there is a nice guide for um how to avoid those things from happening or what to do when it does happen um but i i know that all of my favorite more proficient dms when i've played dnd &D or games like it have a plan they have a backup plan um for total total failure total system shutdown um sure because and, and I think it's also a, not satisfying for them because well, right. no, trying nobody, to do the story you know if if it's a game about heroic fantasy then that's not the outcome anybody wants you know nobody wants to see that happen uh and there are of course there are lots of flavors of play and there are games where it's adversarial and the gm is very uh, either a neutral arbiter or is act actively trying to destroy you and whatever those are great too that's a that's a different mode and in those cases you're not playing that game if total party kills are going to be unsatisfying, right? Right. So, you know, it, it's a it's a varied landscape. There's lots of ways to approach it, but like, be sensitive and think about what you're doing, and think about the rules that you're using and what they support and what they don't. And if if the game is mechanically complex enough that things can go off the rails and lead to situations that are very unsatisfying for everybody, well, you know. Think about what that means and how you're going to handle that. I think that that's another place where transparency can be appropriate, or you can be like, hey, this is not going the way any of us anticipated. What do we do? You know, five heads are smarter than one. We all see the direction this is heading. Maybe we should fix it. And what does that look like? You had mentioned the word consent too earlier, um, that it has to be something that everyone's consenting to. This is the type of game we're all consenting to. Sure. Um, and a good way to kind of facilitate and foster that is making sure that you have some strong safety tools, some safety tools that work for your group. And a safety tool can be is like having the conversation ahead of time is a form of safety tool. Um, and there are other tools that facilitate like rewinding, for example, like with a script change um, yep. safety tool or like actually I'm very unsatisfied with this right now i'm gonna i'm gonna tap the x card we need to we need to stop we need to debrief um choosing the right safety tool so when expectations or or or, or other things but safety tools aren't just for when someone experiences like a trigger they're also for when someone's experiencing like oh, hold on this is not what i asked for in the story this is not where i wanted this to go and if this keeps going i'm not going to have fun anymore Sure. That's what a safety tool is for. Um, and and yeah, I would really recommend any any table get themselves set up with one that works and works for them and maybe 100%. also plan for it to fail because safety tools well, also right, fail. Sure. Right. You know, the, um, the, the tools are only as good as the trust and love of the people who are using them. So um, think about that, too. You know, the uh, one of my favorites is uh, there's a game called Archipelago by Matthias Holter that I love, that I play all the time. And it has phrases that you can use. And one of them is try a different way. 
And on the surface, that sounds like kind of like the X card, right? You're saying mm -hmm. try a different way. But the way that it's contextualized in Archipelago is you can say that if I think that you could do better, right? So like, Jess, you describe how you do a cool thing. If I think that you could describe that in a better way or a more fun way or a more interesting way or a way that's better for your character or whatever, I can say try a different way. And what I'm doing is challenging you to be your best. And that is a super high trust thing to do, mm. right? Like, I don't know you well enough to to try a different way you right now, but my friends who I play with every week, absolutely, I can challenge them. And of course, it's it, the tool also works for, whoa, we agreed that this is going to be a melancholy game and you're making it silly. And it also works for, whoa, I don't want to see a horse killed, right? Mm -hmm. So like it's it's the, it covers a whole range of potential safety, but also aesthetic challenges which i think is so smart and interesting um that's just an example i guess don't recommend it using that with strangers because you're going to offend somebody who's like well this is the i'm doing the best i can i this is this is my best creative contribution don't judge it uh, but with good friends it's great it just leads to amazing amazing experiences uh, but yeah i'm a big fan of um finding the tools that work for your culture of play uh, whatever those might be and then using them for sure i love that i'm gonna have to check that one out um specifically because i've been looking for a safety tool that i that works best with a group of high trust individual like a, a group of uh people who trust each other highly yeah it's a very it's a different uh a different situation and and with that the group of people you don't have to necessarily put in guardrails around uncomfortable content right because maybe you know if it's mm -hmm. people that you know and play with all the time you know not to do eye stuff with jimmy because jimmy's squicked out by eye stuff um and you know not to kill animals when i'm at the table but um but you can you can challenge people aesthetically and you can uh you can go you can play harder right you can be like no that's not you're not being mean enough be meaner you know and and that's so satisfying and fun in mm -hmm. a high trust environment absolutely you can fail better. That's not that's not the worst you can do. Yeah, and so. it, it strikes me too that it's um it's a less it it it's a more immersive way to keep that conversation going without like you, you like some safety tools can sometimes feel like you're putting on the brakes and everybody takes a step back from the table and everybody kind of loses track of like like gets out of the game, kind of gets out of the game headspace. And we now we're gonna have a discussion about a thing. And that's those are important things to do in the right circumstances, but with people that you know really well. You know, it's it's like almost like a shorthand that just kind of is very conversational at the table and just says, like, try a different way. And the person goes, OK, and then they just kind of it's uh, you know, it's not it's not unlike a, a number of different improv games that are, you know, that sort of thing where somebody describes something one way and then they they prompt they get prompted by another person in the game to try it um, a different way and to you know make it funnier, make make it funnier, make it sadder, make it yep. you know more poignant. And try different ways also an offer, right? And in, in same in, in that improv terminology, it's an offer. So you can always be like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I think I nailed it. <laughs> I'm going to say it again, but louder this time. <laughs> right. like, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with what I just contributed. So I'm not gone. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, when obviously if, if, the, if it's something that's troubling to somebody, then of course you do. But if it's an aesthetic choice, if you're challenging someone to, to do something cooler or different or better, then you can just say, no, I'm, I'm good happy with what I did. Um, yeah, just try a different way. It's a like a ritual phrase in the game and, and the game has others as well. Uh, like there's a phrase specifically for like, go harder, 
you know, play, play harder. That's you're being too soft. Um, and there's a phrase for, um, it's not going to be that easy. No, we, <laughs> we have a moment of uncertainty and conflict. I don't think that's going to be as easy as you think it is. And because that's something that anybody can say, you can go really hard in archipelago you can be like, and I cut his head off and I show it to the crowd and I'm the most awesome warrior in the world and they love me. And you can just keep going until someone's like, nah, I just don't think it's going to be that easy, pal. <laughs> and, and, and then you go to, you know, resolution system. But um, until that happens, you can just be as big as you want, which is, which is also very liberating. I, I can't say enough good things about archipelago. It's a great game. <clears throat> I, I love suggestions on this game or on this podcast. I love, I love getting good suggestions. Um, that's a lot of, um, I mean, that's kind of getting into some of the, the game design rules, since it sounds like those are ritual phrases that are added into the text of the game. Yep. Um, but they're, they're primarily tools for the GM or the players to use. What, what are some of the moves that we can make as game designers that help us add this, add all these wonderful things? Like we we haven't discussed as much about how fun it is sometimes to lose, but what but it is. What can we do in our game design to make that a satisfying, worthwhile experience for everyone? I want to make a I want to make a game where where loss is center or at least part incorporated into the game. What should I do? Yeah, or the loss is satisfying, right. which I think is another thing. So uh, here's an example that I think is maybe instructive of that. So I have a game called Carolina Death Crawl. And in Carolina Death Crawl, you're telling the story about um, uh, Union troops in the American Civil War trapped behind enemy lines and abandoned. And you're going to fight your way back to the coast of North Carolina and Union positions through Confederate you know, troops that are hunting you down and it becomes, it gets a little weird and spooky and um, only one of you is going to survive. Only one of you is going to make it back. And that's right on the, it's on the tin. That's, that's the game. One of you will survive. So it's a little competitive, right? And as I was designing this game, that was like my North star. I really liked that idea um, that, that it was a little competitive that one person, one character would survive and the rest would not. Uh, that, was thematically appropriate. It made it it made the game what I wanted it to be, but the 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 thing that becomes a problem then is that you have, and I'm sure Craig, it, it, you know, you, you've experienced this. Uh, the people who die have to have something to do. The people who die need to have agency, and they need to be transformed into a a different role that's cool and interesting. Um, so in that's the thing to think about, right? Like if there's going to be failure, then you you need to allow that failure to result in something fun for, for everybody. Fun, type one fun, type two fun, whatever, but it's got to be, uh, it, it has to be- Engaging and satisfying. For everybody, right? Yeah. Um, when we can talk about type one and type two fun in a second, because I think that's an important <laughs> topic related to this. But just to, to wrap up my uh, anecdote, so in Carolina Deathcrawl, when your character dies and they die in horrible ways, um, you become a swamp ghost. And uh, the game 
role for you transitions from playing a character in a tabletop role-playing game to uh, basically kind of LARPing. You get up from your seat and your job is to whisper things in the ears of the surviving players about how doomed <laughs> they are and what terrible things await them. Uh, and that is so fun. That is such a fun role because you're you're reinforcing the game's tone, which is like, you know, swamp doom, you know, nightmarish terror. Uh, you get to reinforce that tone. You get to uh, mess with your friends uh, and you get to do it in a very active kinesthetic way. It's a, it's like a reward, right? Like something fun happens to you when your character dies and, and you get to make the game better in a different way. It recontextualizes your participation. So like that's, that's a, my thought process for that game resulted in that. And I'm very happy with how that, how the game plays and the result. Now, is that a gemless game? It is. Yeah. I'm curious about uh, what the two of you think, because both of you have just described games that include separate roles for players that are knocked out, so to speak, of the game, mm -hmm. and they are both GM-less. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> well, I think by its nature, um, a GM-less game, we often refer, we, we've done it on this show. I've heard other people talk about it. A GM-less game is actually a GM full game. Everybody right. takes on some aspect of the GMing a little bit rather than one person having the the overwhelming, you know, overriding responsibility. So having, by, by necessity, you've got everybody is doing those kind of GM-y things here and there. And so when your player is knocked out, you're already kind of in the mode of like, oh, well, we're going to be doing a GME thing, which is speaking as this, NP, you know, basically now this ghostly NPC in the case of Jason's game um, or, you know, spending producer points and, and screwing around with things in the case of Die Laughing. So I think, you know, it's it that that's that's the, the, the thing that jumps out at me initially is that you're not treading on a GM's toes like you're doing things that fill the GM role, but you're already kind of doing some of that to begin with. Um, so it just, it, it, you know, allows you to transition to that very smoothly. Um, that was one of the things that I ran into when the idea for Die Laughing was originally a more a GM'd game. And I was trying to figure out ways of having characters die and become part of a quote, 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 unquote, GM team. The game was originally entitled um, One of Them, which was like, you know, you'd get made into a vampire by the the big bad vampire and you'd become a vampire. You'd play your character as a vampire. And as the game progressed, you'd start with a group of players and that would dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and they would become outnumbered by the monsters, the GM and their team at the table. So you'd be like replicating what happens in a movie or a story about vampires as all characters get turned into vampires. Um, and uh, I just, I couldn't find a good way <laughs> to integrate all those people to do GM stuff without taking too much away from the GM or what I felt was taking too much away from the GM. Um, and that's where, you know, so then it became GMless. There's a, it, this is also a, a place where you can think about the affordances of your game. Um, one of the affordances that you have under your control is time. And if your game only takes a half hour to play, then you can just kick people out. <clears throat> and no one's going to be sad about that because watching other people play for 15 minutes is no big deal. It's, a, it's actually fun. Um, so, you know, uh, you have to look at the I think as a designer, you have to look at all the surfaces that you can design on, all the, the pieces that are within your control, uh, and then decide which ones make sense given the, the kind of game that is being built. Um, so like Zombie Cinema is a wonderful game that uh, is very plays very fast, 
your characters are going to get eaten by zombies and then you're kind of done, you know, but it doesn't matter because in 15 minutes you're ready to do something else. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, both of those, like the fact that you're not, you're not taking away from someone else's role by joining a team. Um, because I do think everyone needs a role while they're playing the role playing game. Um, you need one that is satisfying and distinct for you. Um, and also that I don't want to sit around and watch people play for three hours. Um, that's why I play games too. Cause I want to actually play them. I want to do the game sure. part. Um, I, I think for me, like, it makes sense to have a role like you're knocked out of the game you take on a different role that makes a lot of sense for me for a jammed game i am not going to be on the hunt for one that does that with uh oh, sorry gmless game i'm going to be on the hunt now for one that does that with a jammed game and see what i can find yeah that's an interesting challenge mm -hmm. i was on another track i was going to ask another question and i've forgotten it because i've been <laughs> thinking i've been thinking about what a jammed game that has a uh, new roles would look like i th oh, sorry there's an anime as I talk about anime a lot that I haven't watched yet, but it's on my to watch list, but it's about an ancient immortal elf who has lost all of her mortal adventuring parties and like has a new one. come. I think that that could be an interesting place to go. Now I'm going to keep looking. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were still on the track of uh, talking about game design moves, making it fun for people who are knocked out of the game. What other game design moves can we make to make loss satisfying? I think if you uh, foreground loss and everyone's working toward that, then it's going to be uh, satisfying. I mean, Fiasco does that. You're going to play dumb people. They're going to get in trouble. That's what's fun about it. It's kind of liberating. It's kind of cathartic. It's kind of subversive uh, because it it's, it's sort of the opposite of what most games, like we talked about fate. You're playing competent people who largely succeed at what they do. Um, and that's, I think most role-playing games uh, are, you know, built in that paradigm and there's nothing wrong with that paradigm that's super fun but if you switch it up or you change the context um then uh by foregrounding failure or loss then you know it's not a problem it's never going to be a problem because that's why we're here that's that's what we came to do that's one uh you know one solution i guess to that problem I do remember what my question was that I was going to ask. Oh, it yeah, was what, what is fun type one and fun type two? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is something that I think comes out of backpacking and uh, and mountaineering. So type one fun is fun that's happened. It's fun while you're doing it. And type two fun is fun that is fun in retrospect. In the moment, it's not fun at all. But, <laughs> but when you look back on it, it's pretty fun. And it's a fun story to tell. Um, sometimes I think in my design practice, I'm making type two fun games sometimes where um, you're telling just an awful story. And sometimes it's really fun to tell an awful story and sometimes it's not, but afterward, it's always pretty cool to look back on. And I think there's lots of room for type two fun in role-playing that is underutilized. I think most people, uh, when they design games, they're really focused on making sure that everyone is having a great time all the time. And I don't think we need to do that. I think as long as you are really clear about your expectations, you can make games that are challenging, that are difficult, that are sad, uh, that are going to make you feel something, uh, that are going to uh, make you confront things that are ugly. Uh, those games are valid and they're important, uh, particularly, I think, in a, in a teaching and learning kind of way. Uh, you know, if you want to teach somebody about 
the Holocaust, you can talk about it or you can play Rosenstrass. And if you play Rosenstrass, it's not going to be a good time. Uh, it's type two fun, but afterward, it's going to be a very richly rewarding experience. And you'll come away with it uh, with a very different uh, sense of uh, experience based on the topic than you would have if someone lectured you about it. I can imagine that if this comes out of backpacking, that um, one of the key elements of having type two fun is the idea that you know at the end you will be okay and you will be able to think back on this um, because in backpacking maybe there are some moments i think that there's a difference between having a bad time in the moment that will be fun later and having a bad time in the moment that's going to be traumatic for you later oh yeah that's type three fun <laughs> type three fun is it wasn't fun when we did it it's not fun to think about yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. I think that we should avoid having type three fun in our games. Um, I think a lot of that hopefully is coming down to the experiences um, after the book is out of your hands and is in the hands of your players. Hopefully you have eliminated possibilities and avenues of type three fun from your game experience in well, general. Yeah, you, you want to you want to design around it as much as you can. Like I can't tell you what to do at your table with your friends. And it's always possible to wreck my brilliant ideas by the choices you make. Um, and so like, I can tell you what I think is best. Like, uh, just like, in, you know, in fiasco, it's like, we're going to play dumb people getting in trouble. If you play smart people who don't get in trouble, you avoided the warranty. It's the game's not going to work very well. If you play fate as dumb people getting in trouble, the game's not going to work well. I can tell you from experience because it's just not what it's for. So, um, yeah, I think we can be clear about that, set those expectations, but I don't have any control over how you play my games. I wish it I is, did. It is not fun to play with the slinky when I just throw it down the stairs. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, it gets all tangled up. It's a big mess. I, I think that that's um that's a piece of game design advice I actually got from my husband. We design games together and I I would often be worried about like, well, what if they do this? What if do they do this? And he told me, like, you can't. You can't plan your game for assholes. You can't. You can't. You can't. And that's such an important lesson. Like build your game with the assumption that people are going to engage with it thoughtfully uh, and that that um, they're going to do their best to try to play the game that you wrote. Uh, because, man, you cannot. You just can't firewall around people breaking it. You, you know, look at the obvious failure states and the obvious use cases and, you know, try to, you know, create a functional experience. But wow, yeah agreed yeah it's a i think piece of wisdom it still i have to think about that sometimes i'm like oh can't design for assholes can't like yeah, i'm designing I've, for the nice people i've given that advice to to a, a number of people once once it kind of occurred to me um at some point i think probably somebody said it to me as well at some point i was just like oh yeah you know what that's entirely true like i, I can't do that um but what i can do and this is something i've discovered is i can give um, I can explicitly describe options if you want to have um, some uh, some sort of control or at least address the ways that people might play the game. Um, I did this in Code Warriors, which is a game about playing programs living inside of a computer and the computer is crashing. It's the apocalypse. Um, and I, I set it up to have... Um, because it made me think of video games, it was going to be, oh, there's play modes. There's going to be easy mode, hard mode, and hopeless mode. And easy mode, it's all kind of Mad Max. Everything goes apocalypse, and then everybody just 
tools around having cool apocalypse characters. Um, you can play hard mode, which is everything's going to get wiped out, but you can stop it. So it has an epic story of like, we're going to save the world. And then there's hopeless mode where everything's going to end at some point and there is nothing you can do about it. And what do you do with the time you have? Um, and present that as, as a possibility to the players. Um, if they want to play that way, like, you know, some people will be like, okay, well, I'm going to try to just get the little victories that I can. I'm going to do what I can to help people. I'm going to this and that. And some people will be like, I'm just going to, I'm going to go along with the story and I'm going to, you know, I'll contribute to that, but I'm, I'm going to play this game where my character comes to terms with their impending demise. And that's what I'm going to focus my role playing on. And that can make for, you know, potentially a pretty heavy role playing experience. Um, might turn into type two fun. Like you, you have a hard yeah. time kind of getting through it, but then at the end you're like, that was cathartic. And really, I learned a lot about myself and I kind of came away with, uh, with a deeper understanding of perhaps what some other people have actually gone through, um, in their own actual lives, or this might be something that I can think about and, and encapsulate in my mind a little bit when I think about the fact that at some point and I, I am going to die and I'm there, there, it's very possible that I will know that it's coming at some point. And for some people, they don't know, but some people have a pretty good heads up that it's going to happen. Um, and you can play, you can, you, know, you can have the game be about that sort of thing and just give them as the designer, just put it in there explicitly and say, Hey, you can play this game a few different ways. If the game supports that. For sure. Yeah. I think that's really smart um, to present the, the, um, those options. Jason, do you have any final thoughts as we are beginning to wrap up our discussion about loss and failure? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, this is, it feels like it's been a very productive conversation and you're a congenial hosts. And I thank you for that. Um, so just some things to think about as a designer, um, you 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 want to think about benchmarks for success, right? And those can be orthogonal to winning. Those can be orthogonal to to fictional success. Um, and uh, winning can be a fail state, which I think is super interesting. It's a fun it's a fun space to explore. Um, and unwinnable scenarios. That's just life, you know, we, we're constantly in unwinnable scenarios. So designing with those in mind uh, is just a, a window into, into play that is very fruitful and is fun to explore. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with us. I have a new terminology to bring on my, to my <laughs> students. I'm going to tell good, them good. about type one, type two fun and tell yeah. them right now we're having type two fun. It's always just type two fun. You well, don't like I it think, right now. I think you got to include type three fun. That's important too. <laughs> make sure to avoid type three fun. We're not going to have any type three fun in this class, but we'll have a lot of type two fun. I'm going to have type three fun. You're not. It's Very fine. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, Jason, where can we find you and your stuff if people want to learn more about you after they listen? Gosh, I would love for people to uh, visit bullypublicgames.com. Uh, which is our website, and you can uh, find the products that I mentioned there. Um, we have a Bully Public Games Discord, which uh, is pretty pretty casual. But if you're interested in what I'm up to and the games I'm making, that's a place to talk about that. Um, and you can find me at different social media places, I guess. Um, but you'll have to sort of track me down because that the universe has fractured in weird ways. So I'm, <laughs> I'm out there, but you'll have to look for me. 
Um, you can find me at wannabegames.com. I in never mind. I just remembered I only have 23 hours left to go in this Kickstarter. It won't be it won't be uh, going by the time this is. But I mean, I guess in the future you can look forward to the Steamboat Willie um, solo game <laughs> that I have coming out soon. Uh, I don't have anything else in the in the pike right now. So that's me. You can find me on Twitter at, at Joska or other places in the same place. Uh, and you can find my games at nerdburgergames.com. Um, the fancy versions of uh, some of the games, the hardcovers are there on the web store. Otherwise, Drive Through RPG is your place. And I am at nerdburgercraig on pretty much every other social media platform that I'm on until I decide to run screaming from one or two of them. Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you so much, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.